blessing upon this church family as we uh, seek to live out your word in a way that brings you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So, as Pastor Mark described, we are working our way through John, and we are in the middle of the book, and in fact, Pastor Mark started in the middle of the chapter of the middle of the book, and... Messiah? Where is he from? What's he like? And as you read along with Pastor Mark, you know, you saw these questions. When Messiah comes, this is what he's going to be like. When Messiah is here, he's certainly not going to do this. Okay. So these interests, these questions, they're not new. Yet, we're a little different than what things were like 2,000 years ago. Why? Because we have this whole thing. And at the end of the book that we're currently studying, John chapter 20, we're even told that the author of this gospel wrote these things so that we might know who Messiah is. These things are written, John 20 verse 31 says. These things are written. What you read this morning is written so that you may know that Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And believing in him, you may have life through his name. So that's more than just an intellectual knowledge. That's more than just taking out an identification key and saying, yep, that's him. That by knowing him, you may have life through his name. Now, 
in chapters 7 and 8 of this gospel, we are put into a Jewish festival. A Jewish festival. By and large, this church is not Jewish. It's really important to understand some differences here because much of the richness of John 7 and 8 comes from understanding the Jewish festival. Let me illustrate. So, you know, this past week we had Easter and maybe you had some interaction with family, friends. Maybe you were invited to someone's house and you did Easter with them. Okay, so you're in relatively unfamiliar territory. I mean, you might know them, but as you're sitting around the table and you're talking, maybe there's like jokes that the family gets that you don't. Maybe there's situations that they'll talk about, they're reminiscing, and they talk about something and everybody laughs and you kind of have the awkward, <laughs> you have no clue what they're talking about. You, you know, they're, they're describing some situation that happened that they get because they were there and they understand and it was a long time ago when so-and-so was little and all oh, this is hilarious and they bring it up and you're just like, yeah, I kind of understood what you said, but I really don't understand what you're talking about. You'll laugh, you know, awkward smile. And then someone notices and they're gracious enough to say, oh, what we're talking about is, and then they fill in the blanks. You're like, oh, okay. And you want to laugh as hard as they did, but it's still not as funny to you as it was to them. And so it's just really awkward. You can appreciate the joke on its face, but you really don't get the richness of it because you're not part of the family. You're not there. Today, I'm going to spend some time explaining some of the richness of this passage. And the richness we find here is in verses 37 through 39. Now, we read verses 25 through 52. But verses 37 through 39, Jesus is saying something really significant as it relates to just this sense of assessment. Who is Jesus? So let's look at these verses. John 7, verse 37. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast. Why is that important? Uh -huh. We'll find out. Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Why would he say that? I don't know. We'll find out. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Why does he say that? I don't know. We'll find out. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Why does Jesus say what he says in verses 37 through 38? And why should we care? And how does this impact you 2,000 years later? Is this just going to be a history lesson? Oh, no. This really gets to the heart along with what he continues to say in chapter 8 as to the festival and as to Jesus and why so many people hated him. And why we read at the beginning that there were people who were wanting to kill him. So, we're going to be looking at several Old Testament passages. We're going to start in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 23. Okay? Leviticus chapter 23. And admittedly, I'm going to be reading some passages that are about 10 or 11 verses long. And you're going to wonder what the relevance is. I'll help to explain this as we go on. 
But as you see, as we go along, I hope you'll see just how significant this is to our understanding of John chapter 7 and John chapter 8. You see, John chapter 7 starts at the festival of tabernacles. You know, Jews today still celebrate a holiday very similar to this. It's called Sukkot. They celebrate it. It's, I believe, this coming year. It's going to be October-ish, September, October-ish. It's usually at the beginning of harvest. Its beginnings come here in the law. Leviticus chapter 23, starting in verse 33. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth of this seventh month, is the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, for seven days to the Lord. On the first day is a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work of any kind. For seven days you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation and present an offering by fire to the Lord. It is an assembly. You shall do no laborious work. These are the appointed times of the Lord, which you shall proclaim as holy convocations to present offerings by fire to the Lord burnt offerings and grain offerings, sacrifices and drink offerings, each day's matter on its own day. Besides those of the Sabbaths of the Lord, and besides your gifts, and besides all your votive and freewill offerings, which you give to the Lord. On exactly the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the crops of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord for seven days, with a rest on the first day and rest on the eighth day. Now on the first day you shall take for yourselves the foliage of beautiful trees, palm branches, and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall thus celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a perpetual statute through your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall live in booths for seven days." All the native-born in Israel shall live in booths, so that your generations may know that I have the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them out from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So this is a festival that God initiates through Moses for Israel around the time of harvest so that they might remember the wilderness passage. God delivered them from Egypt. You remember? They crossed through the Red Sea, they escaped from the Egyptian armies, and they spent 40 years wandering in the desert, yet God protected and provided all along the way. This was a week-long festival for them to celebrate and to remember. You see, part of their history lessons in their culture were festivals. Often we think of history lessons like listening to a guy like me, or reading a book, or maybe watching a YouTube video. They had festivals. They had festivals where they actually lived in dwelling places, performed sacrifices, poured water and wine over the altar, built torches and had fire, all commemorating this time that their ancestors went through the wilderness. Now, we just read. This was something that was instituted. And they kept doing it and doing it and doing it and doing until we get to Jesus, right? Wrong. They stopped. You know why? Because there's this thing. It was called captivity. You see, Israel and Judah both were taken into captivity. And the temple was burnt to the ground. Jerusalem was razed. 
Now, eventually, those Israelites came back to Jerusalem. They came back to their homeland. And things changed. They weren't celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles in captivity. But under Nehemiah, they started to again. Let's look at Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. And we're going to look at verse 13. Nehemiah 8, verse 13. Then on the second day, the heads of fathers' households of all the people, the priests and the Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe that they might gain insight into the words of the law. They found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the sons of Israel should live in booths during the feast of the seventh month. Hey, that's what we just read. Now they're reading it too after captivity. Verse 15. So they proclaimed and circulated a proclamation in all their cities in Jerusalem, saying, Go out into the hills and bring olive branches and wild olive branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. The entire assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in them. The sons of Israel had indeed not done so from the days of Joshua the son of Nun to that day, and there was great rejoicing. The Feast of Tabernacles, just as a side note, was a great period of rejoicing. This was like the high point of the calendar. There was much celebration. There was much gladness. Each day in the Feast of Tabernacles, the priest would walk down to the Pool of Siloam and take a chalice and dip it in there. And he would walk back up into the temple area and he would hold this chalice up above the altar and he would pour it on the altar. And on the seventh day, he did it seven. He got that chalice and walked around it seven times. And people are cheering and rejoicing. They're remembering their history, but they're celebrating a festival. This was high time. And he pours that out and everyone cheers. And they say, praise to the Lord. This was a high spiritual festival. This was a high celebratory festival. There was great rejoicing, it says in verse 17. Now, as they're doing this, not only are they looking at their past, but Israel is also through this festival looking to its future. We use a word here every once in a while. It's called eschatology or eschatological. All that word simply means is it's looking towards the future. And this festival, this practice, became an eschatological practice looking towards when Jesus, or I'm sorry, when the king, when Messiah would come and perform this. So let's look at Zechariah chapter 14. Say, man, this is long context. I know. It's okay. We're learning, but more than learning, we're, we're, we're understanding just why Jesus says what he says and how, for lack of better words, audacious it was. 
Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah is a hard book to find. If you get to Matthew, you've gone just a little too far. Go back just a little, and then you'll find it. Zechariah chapter 14. Okay, just from a context standpoint, verse 9 is really helpful. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. So this is the future. Okay, this is the future, right? Verse 16 through 19. Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the feast of booths. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. If the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Now notice there, there's that line about there will be no rain. You have to understand that as the priest is pouring out this water over the altar and as people are celebrating, they're also doing this with the future in mind. Remember, they're in a desert. It's really dry. And what they're doing is they're honoring God in hopes that by honoring him, they will be blessed with an abundant harvest. They will be blessed with lots of rain. So the water signifies God bringing rain to help their crops. This was an agricultural society, remember? Okay, so do we see all of these components together in this festival, okay? This is what's going on in John chapter 7, one week out of the year. And Pastor Tim preached several weeks ago how Jesus didn't initially go up to the festival, but eventually did. And so here we are, and if you want to turn back to John chapter 7, that's where we'll be. So here we are in the middle of a very Jewish festival where they are celebrating God's preserving of the Israelites through the wilderness wandering. They're performing these rituals that signify God's blessing of water, of abundance. And this is the context whereby Jesus begins teaching in the temple. Now... Why spend so much time going through this festival? Here's the key. Don't miss this. Jesus is taking the events of what is going on in John 7 and 8, and he's using them to show that he is the Christ. The Feast of Tabernacles, something distinctly Jewish and rooted in Jewish history, was being used by John to accomplish the point of the book. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Okay? If you're familiar with the book of Colossians, Paul says that there were some who were celebrating in the church age, they were celebrating these feasts, new moons, Sabbaths, and he calls them a shadow of what is to come, but the substance is Christ. The festival is a shadow of which the substance is 
Christ. It's kind of like you look outside and the sun is shining and you see the impression, or not the impression, but you see the shadow of a tree on the ground. The shadow is not the tree. Jesus is coming in saying, the substance, I'm him. And we get to this festival. Now, okay, so this is a chapter of assessment. If you're taking notes, I don't know what you're doing right now. But up to this point, I'll give you some more clarity, okay? Really three questions, okay? I'm sorry, not three questions, three points, but they all relate to the question of who is Jesus, okay? So the first thing we're going to see, you're like, first thing? We've been, you've been going for like 20 minutes. You say first, don't worry, okay? The first one is who the people assume he is. Second part, who Jesus says he is. And then the third part, who the leaders insist he isn't. Okay? So let's start off by saying who the people assume he is. And this is like a four-part question on a test. A, B, C, and D. Okay? A. People assume he can't be the Christ because they know where he comes from. Verse 27. However, we know where this man is from, but whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he's from. This can't be the Christ because we know where he's from. That's option one, who the people assume he is. Option number two, he might be the Christ because of the things he says and the signs he performs. He might be the Christ because of the signs he performs and the things he says. Look at verse 31. But many of the crowd believed in him, and they were saying, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? He might be the Christ. In fact, there's even speculation back at verses 25 and 26 because the Pharisees and the leaders weren't challenging Jesus. They're just letting him talk, and they're like, have they, like, secretly decided he's the Christ? So it might be the Christ, option B. Option C, we just don't know because he's really confusing. He's really confusing. Look at verse 35. The Jews said then to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He is not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is the statement that he said, you will seek me and will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? They don't understand. So that's option. We just don't understand. He can't be the Christ because we know where he's from. He might be the Christ. Look at what he's doing. We just don't understand him. Or D, all of the above. Look at verse 40. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard the words of Jesus, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. So others were saying, sure, the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem and the village where he was? So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. All of the above. He might be, he isn't. We're confused. They're looking for who the Messiah is. They're asking these questions. Well, he can't be like this, but he's doing this. We're confused. Now, the second part here is who Jesus says that he is. Who Jesus says that he is. 
What does Jesus say? Well, look at verses 28 and 29. Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I'm from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true. Note this phrase, whom you don't know. Where is he saying that? Beginning of verse 28, it says he cried out in the temple who you don't know. Look down at verse 34. I'm sorry, verse 33. Therefore Jesus said, for a little while longer I am with you. Then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Who does Jesus say he is? Well, he said, first of all, that he is one sent by God and going to God. He is sent from God, by God, and going to God. Oh, by the way, someone you don't know and somewhere you're not going. He's saying this in the temple. I know him, but you don't. I'm going to him, but you're not. Who does Jesus say that he is? And then we get to the passage I highlighted earlier, verses 37 and 38. Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Don't miss the irony here. Don't miss the festival. Pouring the water on the altar. The significance of it in their history. What does Jesus say? If anyone's thirsty, I know you're all looking and watching this and celebrate this, but he cries out and says what? Come to me. Those leaders were not amening. We might, but they weren't. Jesus spoke of who he was when all of Jerusalem would be looking to the priest who would be pouring water over the altar. He was taking the attention of the festival and he was putting it on himself. He was inserting himself into the celebrations around them. This statement of identity was unmistakable. He was taking the assumptions and speculations of the crowd. He might be the Christ. Nah, he's not the Christ. We don't know. And he's making it unmistakably clear. Everything you're doing, oh, not just this year, you've been doing it for years. If you're thirsty, come to me. He who believes in me. Who is this guy? And actually, the priests and the the Pharisees say that to him in John 8. Who do you think you are? And because the statement was so unmistakable, this is probably why in verse 40, some are saying, this is the prophet. This is the Christ. They took him at his word. They connected those two. This claim was audacious. And this is really where I want our first point or first part of application for us today to be today. We're going to stop just for a moment. We're going to make a point of application from this part. 
Jesus' claim was audacious at that day and age because he was inserting himself into that festival. But can I tell you, Jesus' claim as Lord is no less audacious today because he wants to and he demands as Lord to insert himself in every part of your life. Not just adding on, not just someone to admire. Lord. Think about the I am statements in the book of John. Right? I am. So in John chapter 6, Pastor Tim preached, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. But think about the implications. Without me, you're hungry. Without me, you will thirst. Think about the I am statement in John chapter 8. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. From that, we can arrive at this conclusion. Without him, we will walk in darkness. Without Jesus, you will be lost and not have the light of life. In fact, he makes it explicitly clear to his disciples in John 14. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And from that, we should conclude no one can come to God, no one can come to God the Father except through him. Jesus is inserting himself into every part of your life. And that's a good thing. He demands that as Lord. Just as he took the festival and said, see that? He who follows me will never thirst. If anyone is thirsty, come to me. He had the right to do that. This is why C.S. Lewis's statement about taking Christ either as a madman or who he says he is is so relevant, I think, and so accurate. Jesus just can't be this nice man spreading love and kindness, being a good rabbi. No, either he is who he says he is because he has that right, or he is a madman. Because only someone either A, who is who he says he is, or B, a madman, would do what he's doing here in John 7. Now practically, what does this look like? Jesus inserting himself into your life. What does that mean? Well, verse 38 here in this passage, he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the spirit whom, he, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the spirit was not yet given because, the Jew, because Jesus was not yet glorified. The Holy Spirit would be given to those who believe in him when Jesus is glorified. And what do we know about the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer? For sake of time, we won't look there, but maybe put in your notes in your margin, Galatians chapter 5. Walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Why? Because the lusts of the flesh and the Spirit wage war against one another. And the deeds of the flesh are obvious. And yet, the deeds of the Spirit are equally as obvious. What does this look like? It looks like the fruits of the Spirit. It looks like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, 
gentleness, self-control. Jesus inserting himself into the life of a person, being their Lord, looks like that because he has changed them from within. So now, we get to the response. Who the leadership insists that he isn't. We've seen, we talked about the people. Okay, we talked about the festival. We talked about the people, not being certain. We talked about Jesus and who he says he is. But lastly here, who the leadership insists that he isn't. And the wording there is intentional. Who they insist that he isn't. Okay? Now, Let's look then at verse 45. The officers, the ones who were sent to arrest Jesus, they didn't. They left. They came back. Where is he? Why did not you bring him? Verse 45. The officers answered, never has a man spoken this way. I'm sorry. Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. To me, this is just, there's irony throughout this whole passage. But this is especially ironic given that these officers are talking to the teachers. Might have been a little jab, intentionally or otherwise. No one has spoken. And they're speaking the truth, though. The Pharisees then answered, You have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or the Pharisees has believed in him, has he? Again, more irony. There's someone in the room that has. Nicodemus. But this crowd does not know, which does not know the law is a curse. That's actually kind of an indictment on the leadership because the crowd was responsible for learning the law from them. They're a curse. What are these leaders doing? Those who insisted that Jesus couldn't be the Christ were proud and condescending. They maligned the guards. They maligned the crowd. And that pride, that condescension actually led to them mishandling the scriptures themselves. Verse 50, Nicodemus, he who came to him before being one of them, said to them, our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? Nicodemus is really calling you know, a point of order based on the law, something they should have known, something they did know. But in their insistence that Jesus wasn't the Christ, they didn't receive Nicodemus's, you know, point of order with grace. Verse 52. They answered, you are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. If you have a study Bible or study note there, you might see this kind of inconvenient truth for the Pharisees, which is there actually was a prophet that came out of Galilee. It was Jonah and possibly Nahum. How do they get it so wrong? Their pride. Their condescension. Their pride led them to mishandling the scriptures. Prophets had come from Galilee. And so what's the result then? I think we see it in verse 37. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. How does this play out? The leadership wasn't thirsty. Think about that. Messiah, 
fulfillment of the festival, the substance, not the shadow, was in their midst, had performed signs, was speaking powerfully, and they weren't thirsty. You will be thirsty if you need Christ, but you won't be if you have all the answers already or if you have your mind made up where your thirst won't be quenched. I don't doubt the Jewish leadership love to learn from each other and love to hear each other teach. I don't think this was just a lack of content. Somehow there were things they just didn't know. I wouldn't doubt their enthusiasm about keeping the rituals of the festival. Listen, they were probably just as excited as everybody else to set up the booths and to celebrate all week and to live in these and remember their, their, their nation's history. But to have this formally untaught Galilean, remember earlier the accusations in, in John 7? In his early 30s, come and publicly challenge their faith and insert himself into the festival, this was unacceptable for them. Believing in Jesus as Messiah was not an option to religious leaders. I want to take a moment to see just how far this goes. Let's look at John chapter 11. John chapter 11, this is the miracle of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And verse 45, after this had taken place, I mean, just the, I feel guilty just mentioning Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Like, okay, that's a really big deal, a big sign. We're going to preach and go through this in, in, in later weeks. But verse 45, therefore, many of the Jews who had came to Mary and saw what Jesus had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore, the chief priests and Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing for this man is performing many signs? Yep. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. Yep. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. How bad is that? Like, to where if Jesus and Barabbas were standing in front of them, who was more likely to be Messiah? You know the answer. Because they chose Barabbas and they crucified Jesus. Now, we need to have our second point of application here. Because as we're reading this text, and as we look at just the context of this unbelief by the leaders, the ones who were leading the festival, the teachers, the religious people, we need to stop and think, and if I may put it this way, be warned. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Because I think 1 Corinthians 10 does a really helpful job 
uh, of expressing the nature of the warning, especially in the context of Paul instructing the church. Look at 1 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren. Now that's really important, that word brethren there. Your translation may say brothers and sisters. So the context here, Paul, he's writing 1 Corinthians. He's talking to Christians. He's talking to people who profess Christ, who believe in Christ. So what he's about to say is for Christians in a church in Corinth. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our, fa our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Okay, so what does this have to do with anything? The Festival of Tabernacles is celebrating these people. It's celebrating this time of Israel's history. Right? The Feast of Booths. The 40 years as the Israelites are wandering through the wilderness and how God provided for them. Okay? So here's just some context. Verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now think about that. When the Red Sea parts and Israel escapes Egypt and they're walking through and Egypt and its armies are trying to capture them. And God sees fit for the Red Sea to come down and judge the Egyptians. And Israel's on the other side celebrating. Verse 5 describes those people. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased. If there was ever an activity that would say, okay, we're definitely on God's side, it's probably parting the Red Sea and letting us go through. And yet, how did they persevere? Verse 6. These things happened as an example for us, so we would not crave evil things as they craved. Do not be idolaters, as some of them who were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. That's the second time he says that. Stuff that's going on in Egypt... Stuff that's going on in Israel, that judgment, that's happening as an example for us. Don't miss it, church. And they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. This is the point of application for us. When we see the religious leadership miss it, let us take heed and stand firm lest we fall. Elders, what about you? Deacons, what about you? Bible study leaders, what about you? Be warned. 
It would have been unfathomable for the common Jewish person to see the Pharisee, to see the rabbi doing the festival of tabernacles, doing all of this year after year after year after year, and, and, and then think, ah, they're not believers. That wouldn't, have a, that, that wouldn't, that wouldn't have, have dawned on their mind, really. And yet, that's exactly what Jesus is saying. Listen, as I read this passage, I am warned. Not because I think I'm going to lose my salvation, but because, if anything, the amount of knowledge that we have, the Bible study and accumulation, all of the achievements, the degrees, and whatever, does not save a soul. We need to be warned. Jesus is talking to the most religious, saying, hey, you don't know me, and where I'm going, you're not going to go. We see how Nicodemus responds to that. He accepts it. But we see how religious unbelief responds to that. They say, you have a demon. You're crazy. Christian? In the New Testament, we are continually encouraged to test our faith as to whether or not we truly are in the body of Christ. So test it. If you get 100% on all of the Bible doctrine quizzes, praise God, you know it. But what about what we sang today? What about you professed with your mouth? How has that changed your life? What about the fruits of the Spirit and how that defines who you are because of the change that God has made? What about a response to those who might come with us with the Word and perhaps challenge the way that we're living? And we look at the Word and instead of really assessing it, we undermine the source. Let's be warned. When we read this passage, we follow the trajectory of the leaders, it's sobering. I mean, how do you go from being a lifelong student and teacher of the law to crucifying the Messiah? How do you go from valuing every minute detail to valuing Barabbas over Jesus? In 2 Corinthians 13, all throughout Hebrews, we're told, test yourselves to see whether or not you're of the household of the faith. You know, one author put it this way. In the history of the church, the most damage has not come from a society that didn't know the Bible, but it came from men and women who knew the Bible quite well and distorted it for their own advantage. You know, this year, there's lots of attention given to the 30th anniversary of the tragedy in Waco, the Branch Davidian compound that burnt down. Almost 100 people, men, women, children, died. You know what's interesting about the leader of that cult? How often he's described as one who really knew the Bible. I'm not saying that somehow we're going to have a Branch Davidian cult come from our congregation, but the Bible is quite clear. False teaching comes from within. That there is a level of vigilance that we must have, and it starts in the mirror, We love the Bible. We preach it. We teach it. We help others understand it. We have it guide how we live. But this passage shows us that we can know the Bible and not know God. That's got to humble you at least a little bit. 
This, is, this, to me, is the beauty of the warning. The beauty of the warning is that the Christian is genuinely warned. Not that the Christian responds, ah, that can never happen to me. I'm not like that. I can never lose my salvation. No, you're right, you can't. Salvation is permanent. But we're given warnings to persevere because we haven't persevered all the way yet. We're still alive. We still have time to go. I don't know how much it is, but by God's grace... I know I'm going to heaven right now based on the promises of God, based on, on what's in Scripture, based on the testimony of the Spirit in my life, based on the, the fruits of repentance in my life, but, but I want to persevere in that. And, and I'm not there yet. I'm still doing it. But the beauty of the warning causes us to, yes, keep persevering. So believer, keep persevering. But 2 Corinthians 13, 4, test yourselves as to whether or not you're of the household of faith. Your 15 discipling relationships doesn't mean that you're genuinely born again. Praise God for those things, and I'm not trivializing discipling relationships, but where do we place our faith? The sad thing about studying the Gospel of John together is that as we continue to look at this festival in John 7 through 8, as we look at what happens in John 9 and 10, in Jesus' confrontation of the religious leaders, and we see the culmination of the, 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 the crucifixion of Jesus, the trajectory of unbelief that has religious clothing on it is that their unbelief only becomes more obvious. But the beautiful thing about studying John's Gospel together is that true belief also becomes more obvious even when true belief colossally messes up. Like the night where Jesus was betrayed and all the disciples abandoning him. True belief will become more obvious. So here we are in a festival where Jesus makes an audacious claim and it's true. And there's varying levels of responses. But it just gets better. And when we get into John 8, we're just going to see how much more clear that claim is. But may we, as Christians, be warned. But may we also, as we look at Jesus and his claim as Lord, be reminded of the necessary part that he has in our lives. More than just intellectual. More than just from 10 to, say, 11.30. Lord is Lord. What a blessing that is. Okay, let's pray. Father, thanks so much for our time. God, these are sobering things. But Lord, they're joyous things. Because of what we've sung, because of what we are about to sing, we have a wonderful, merciful Savior through Him we have redemption. And Lord, in this body of believers, there's such a diversity of spiritual experience of years within formal Christianity. May we be a pure church, one that is full of belief. God, if there's any here that perhaps this isn't the most joyous time of their week, maybe this is very convicting. God, would they turn from their sin, make Jesus the Lord of their life. Help us, Lord, to humbly submit to who Christ is. And in doing so, live out a Christ.
Christ-like life, where that's more than just Sunday school truth. It looks like something in the day-to-day life. Lord, each one of us falls short. Thank you so much for the patience you have. And Lord, I pray for the perseverance of these saints in this room, that we might live well, we might walk worthy of the calling that we've been called. And so, Lord, we'll give you glory when we finish well because of what you've promised to finish in us. Thank you, Lord, for your love. Thank you, Lord, for your love of those who are your enemies, too. That Christ was so clear in his speech and his teaching, yet, Lord, could still pray for their forgiveness as he's being crucified. Help us, Lord. We ask that you be given glory in your son's